good to see you guys. Glad you're with us this morning. If you're new here with us, my name's Robert, one of the pastors here at Redemption Hill. And I continue to scare away the front rows. Um, wow. We're just going to keep going back and back and back, further and further and further with the chairs until somebody sits close to me. Um, I even got this little thing so I wouldn't walk around so much and so the people back there could actually see my face. But if you sat closer, then I might not need to stand up here. But then I'd walk past the first five rows and only the last five rows would ever actually see me. Um, it's good to see you guys. Are, are you ready? Are you ready to study some more Titus, Book of Titus? You excited? I don't know what I would do if you said no. Um, if you've got your Bibles, open them up to the, the book of Titus. We're going to get right in it this morning. Um, if you do not have a Bible or you forgot to bring one with you, we've got these on the table just on the other side of the curtains. Feel free to step up and go grab one. Um, if you don't have a Bible, take one, please. They're free. They're our gift to you. Um, if you're using one of these Bibles, you can find the book of Titus on page 857. Um, while you're turning there, let me just remind you of where we have been so far and a little bit about where we're going. Uh, as we started looking at the book of Titus last week, Paul's letter to his church planting friend, church planting um, buddy, Titus, uh, we began to see that Paul's essential message throughout his entire letter as we look through it over the next few weeks is simply this, essential to the cultivation of healthy churches that reflect the character of God as God has revealed himself in his word is the cultivation of healthy Christians that know what it is to deeply enjoy grace. Essential to the development and cultivation of healthy churches is the cultivation of healthy Christians who reflect God's character as he has revealed himself in his word by deeply enjoying his grace. That's the message. That's the essential message of Paul's letter to his buddy Titus as he seeks to encourage Titus to cultivate a healthy church on the island of Crete. Enjoy grace, Titus. Titus, encourage others to enjoy grace deeply. Because as we talked last week, grace, more than anything else, the power of God that comes through his grace is the only thing capable of changing everything. Grace changes everything. It changes you. It changes the way you relate to God. It changes the way you relate to yourself. It changes the way you relate to other people. And it changes the way that you live your life. Grace changes everything. So this week, if you've found the book of Titus, we're going to pick up in verse 5. Paul's going to say this. He's going to say, Titus, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I've directed you. And so what's happened is a church has begun to spring up and form from Paul and Titus' preaching of the gospel on one of their evangelistic journeys throughout the region. And people have come to know the saving grace and power of God through the person of Jesus. They've preached the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And that good news has collided with the sinful souls of men and women all throughout the island of Crete. And they've begun to gather together to learn more about Jesus and the power of his grace and of his gospel. And, and Paul leaves his buddy Titus there to to do work in that place as he continues on. And, and Paul says this, Titus, essential to cultivating health, essential to cultivating health in these people and cultivating health in this church that it might enjoy my grace. Here's what I want you to do first and foremost. Notice, though, when we read it, what he did not say to do. 
Titus, cultivate a healthy church out of these converts and creeds that in Crete, that more people might know my good news. Titus, get the best sound system you can get. Titus, spare no expense. Make the place as appealing and hospitable and likable as any temple on the island. Make the people want to come in there that you can then tell them about me. Get the best kids program so that all the parents can think that for at least an hour or two, but back in this day, maybe four or five, I don't have to deal with my kids. I've got a place I can go, I can sit, I can relax, I can tune somebody out, and someone else can watch my kids for a while. Titus, you'll get everybody. Get the best kids program and the best audio and the best video, the best space. And That's not what he said. He said, first and foremost, to cultivate health, to safeguard health, to to do the work with these people that my character might be revealed in their life, that they might deeply enjoy the grace that comes from knowing my son Jesus. God has instructed Paul to instruct Titus to appoint elders in every town, to cultivate a healthy church that enjoys grace. What we're going to look at this week is that you need, first and foremost, leaders that themselves enjoy grace. To cultivate a healthy church that enjoys grace, you need leaders that enjoy grace. And if we want healthy churches made up of healthy Christians, then we need to find the right leaders, and then we need to follow them. That's what Paul encourages his buddy Titus to do in this island. And I'm going to pray for us, and over the next bit of time that we've got this morning, we're going to look at what the scriptures have to say about who the right leaders are for God's church, that they might cultivate lives in God's people that deeply enjoy God's grace. And then we're going to look specifically at what Paul encourages Titus to look for, and what he encourages Titus to encourage these men to do. So let's pray, and then we'll, we'll have some fun. I'll preach it myself, and I'll preach it all of you a little bit. Father, thank you for, um, for bringing us together here again. Thank you that it's your grace that draws us to you. It's your grace that draws us here. Uh, we may think we're here for all kinds of reasons, Lord, but underneath it all, it's your grace that woke us up this morning. It's your grace that's given us breath. It's your grace that's given us the unction and the desire to be together with your people, to hear your word. And it's your grace that will enable us to surrender our souls, surrender our spirits, surrender our minds this morning to your word that we might be changed to reflect your character. That's what we're after, health. We want to be healthy Christians who make up a healthy church that displays your character in this world. And so, Lord, we ask that your grace do what only your grace can do, and that's change our heart that we might deeply enjoy it, that our hearts might be warmed by the fire of your grace, that we might not just know about your grace, Lord, but we can encourage ourselves and encourage one another in that grace until it warms us and delights us. So we ask that your spirit, Lord, do what only it can do, and it stoked that fire in our souls this morning and enable us to surrender to your word that you might be glorified and we might be transformed. We ask these things in the name of your precious son, Jesus, in whose life, death, and resurrection we celebrate and enable us to enjoy this very grace that we talk about. Amen. Amen. Who are the right leaders? What do they do? What are they like? How in the world are we ever going to know these things? Uh, before we unpack what Paul says to Titus about that, we're going to run through some New Testament scriptures about the leaders that God has called in his church. And I want to just give you a little bit of a foundation about what the scriptures have to say about the leaders that should enjoy grace and lead God's people to enjoy grace. So we're going to do a little bit of teaching, 
and then I'm going to get into a little bit of, of preaching. So it's going to be a little bit different. I tend to preach for a long time, but we're going to do a little bit of teaching, and then we're going to get into a little bit of preaching. Is that all right? All right, the first thing that you've got to know about the leaders that God calls to lead his church, and you'll see this in Scripture all throughout, and this is foundational, is that above all of it, Jesus is the head of his church. Jesus is the head of his church. I am not the head of this church. If you go on the website, you'll see that next to my name, it says lead pastor, but I am not the head of this church. Jesus is the head of his church. Just look at a couple of scriptures, just so you know I'm not making this stuff up. Ephesians 5, 23. Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. It's pretty simple, isn't it? We'll go a couple more. Colossians 1, 18. Paul says that Christ is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Pretty clear there. Ephesians 4, 15 and 16. Paul says this to the church, grow up in every way into him, talking about Jesus, who is the head, from whom the whole body, talking about the church, may grow and upbuild itself in love. A healthy church is like a body that gets its nourishment, its direction, its leadership from its head, and Jesus is the head of the church. I am not the head of the church. The other pastors are not the head of the church. Jesus is the head of his church, and the rest of us in his church are looking to him for his leadership and direction in how we are to live, how we are to love, and how we are to serve. Throughout the New Testament, you'll see other evidences of Jesus' role in his church, and you'll see that ultimately Jesus is the one who actually plants church, plants churches, that does the work of seeing the gospel change people and begins to call people to himself to plant churches. I did not plant this church. Jesus ultimately planted this church. Jesus is then the head of the church who leads the church. He is the chief shepherd of the church who loves and nourishes the people in the church. He is the one who will ultimately tear down churches. He is the one, John said in Revelation, that will remove the light, the lampstand, from the churches who are unfaithful to his word. He is the one that starts them. He is the one that cares for them. He is the one that leads them. He is the one that tears them down. Ultimately, above all that we talk about when we talk about leaders that enjoy God's grace, you've got to get that Jesus is ultimately the head of his church. Sound good? Second thing you've got to get, all members in God's church, all members in the body of Christ are priests and ministers. There's this thing that's begun to develop in, in church life, and it's not, it's not new. It's, it's not within the last 50 or 100 years. It's happened ever since the organizational church has really taken a foothold in the life of people. There has been this development of this idea that there's this gap between those who vocationally do what we call ministry, and we'll talk about that in a little bit, and those who are a part of the church, and there's this gap that's grown, and these unbiblical expectations have been tossed on both sides. And one thing that we have got to see is that no such gap actually exists in the church. All people, by God's grace, all members of his church are priests and ministers. It's 1 Peter 2.9. Peter says, you, talking to the church, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, that you may declare the wonderful deeds of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. John in Revelation 1 says this, Revelation 1, 5, 6. He says he loves us, talking about Jesus, and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to God and the Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. 1 Timothy 2, 5. I love this because this makes really practical application to this idea. 1 Timothy 2.5 says this, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. There is no 
distinction between those, as we talk about in a little bit, who are called particularly by God to lead his church in a particular way and those who are members of that church in their access to God. We are all priests and ministers. I have no mediating ability between you and Jesus that's distinctly different from the one that you have directly in your own life. I, I can do nothing special uh, you, you can't ask me to pray, and, and, and because I am an elder in this church or a pastor in this church, my prayer is any more effective because of that role. I can't pray down rain because it hasn't rained simply because I might have God's ear. You ever heard that? I, mean, have you, I don't know. You may have talked to a pastor before in your life and said, you know what, pastor, you've got, a, you've got an ear. God's got your ear. I mean, you guys can talk. You know, can you pray this for me? I mean, there's nothing distinct about my connection to God that's any different than yours. I don't stand in any way closer to God because of my role than you do. We're all members of God's family. We are all priests and ministers. There is no distinction in our access to God by his grace simply because of what I do. Does that make sense? All right, let's keep going. Third thing you've got to get. God calls some members of his church to lead the church in particular ways. God calls some members of his church, all who are priests and ministers, to lead his church in particular ways, chiefly to feed and, and lead the church as servants of Christ and as servants of the rest of the body. Look at what he says. Listen to this. Hebrews 13, 7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their life and imitate their faith. See, though there's equality before God in all of us as children of God, there are times when God particularly calls out some people in his church to lead his people in particular ways. Though we're equal, we have particular function in his church sometimes. Look at Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as men who will give an account. We may talk about this later this morning. That's one of the most sobering passages of Scripture that I ever read. That one has, and you can ask my wife, kept me up multiple times at night. There are particular functions in God's church that he calls particular members to, to do in serving him and serving one another. And in the role of a pastor, in the role of an elder, we ultimately, those of us who are called in that way, will give an account before God for the souls that we lead. That is a daunting, daunting challenge. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12-13, Paul says this, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you we ask you to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. In talking to the elders in Ephesus, Acts 20, 28, Paul says, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock, in which, I love this, the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God. So the Holy Spirit, God himself, who is, authoring of the, who is the author of the grace that we so deeply enjoy, who has done the work of changing our lives and initiating that change in our life, who is calling people together in his church, is the one who is setting apart some members of his church for the particular task of leading his people. The Holy Spirit is actually making us who we, who we are. There are particular roles that we're going to look at this week and next week, and, and maybe the week to come as we talk about leaders who enjoy grace. And those particular roles that God calls people into in the life of his church to serve him and to serve the rest of the body are called elders and they're called deacons. Deacons lead the church through serving. Deacons are those who are called by God and, and pertain particular characteristics in their life before God and before other people in the way in the, that their life shows their, their, the depth of their enjoyment of grace. 
and they lead the church body in serving one another. And then there are particular people that God calls out that we call elders. The Bible talks about it. We're going to talk about them this morning. And they serve the church by leading the church. They serve God's people by leading God's people, particularly leading, feeding, and protecting God's people. And we'll talk about that in just a little bit. Um, And there's a third office in the church, and this is one that we don't talk about a whole lot. Um, And if we have time in this series, we will. Uh, Not only are there elders and other deacons, but being a member of God's church is a particular office as well. There are particular leadership responsibilities, duties, and expectations that members of God's church have towards one another. And we don't talk about that very often. We very rarely ever talk about the expectations and the duties that members in God's church have, but they're there. In fact, in the book of Philippians, Paul addresses not only the people of the church, but he addresses the elders, the deacons, and the members. All of you, this is who I'm talking to. So if we've got time, we'll talk about the roles of members as well, because it it will help clarify the leadership responsibility that God gives to to all of his people. Uh, But this morning, we're going to talk in one particular way. We're going to talk about elders who serve the church by leading. And here's what I want to say. I'm still in teaching mode. Are you with me? Have I lost you yet? This is probably more teaching than I really ever do. Are you there? Are you following? Are you tracking? All right. Elders. You see elders consistently throughout the, the establishment and the development of the local church in the New Testament. In fact, not only do you see elders leading the churches throughout the New Testament, you see what we'll talk about in a little while is a plurality of elders, multiple elders in one local church who are given the responsibility and the charge by God to lead that local church. You see in Scripture that the most consistent form of church leadership and church government in the New Testament is this collection of these men who are called elders. Uh, Being an elder and and elders leading the local church uh, was not just one alternative to church leadership that's talked about in the New Testament. It is really the only consistent form of leadership discussed in the New Testament by all of the writers of the New Testament. And you see it wherever new churches are documented and talked about throughout the entire New Testament. Look, let me just give you a a brief look. Uh, You see them in Jerusalem in Acts 15.22. Luke says this, Then it seemed good to the apostles and to the elders, plural, with the whole church to choose men and to send them off to Antioch. You see elders, local elders, plurality of elders leading the local church in Jerusalem. You see in Ephesus in Acts 20:17. In Miletus, Paul, he sent to Ephesus and he called to him the elders of the church. So Paul called to the church in Ephesus, and he called specifically for the elders, the plurality of men that are specifically called by God to lead the churches in that area. You see it in the book we're looking at right now in Titus. You see a plurality of elders being called to lead the local church in Crete. Titus 1.5, this is why I, Paul, left you in Crete, that you might amend what was defective, and you might appoint elders in every town as I directed you. You see, it, you see it in the writing of James. You see it in James' charge to the entire region of churches that he was writing to and his encouragement to say, if one of you is sick, if one, if one of you is, is hurt, let him call the elders, plural, of the church and let them pray over him, assuming that there were a plurality of local church elders that were there that could be called out to. You see it in the writing of Peter to all the churches in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. Peter said this, 1 Peter 5, 1, talking to all the Christians in the dispersion in those areas. So I exhort the elders, plural, among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed. And most consistently and most 
thoroughly, you see the establishment of a plurality of elders leading God's people in all of the churches that Paul starts in his entire first missionary journey that are mentioned in the book of Acts, and the assumption is that they continued on in his second, third, fourth, and continued missionary journeys, as you see in the book of Titus. In Acts 14, 23, it says this, Luke said, and when they had appointed elders for them in every church, as they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they believed. So the, the, the extent, the consistent extent of the presence of elders in the early church becomes more obvious when you see it played out over the life and the development of the early church and when you begin to understand that as you read about the development and the expansion and the establishment of God's church, you can interchange a couple of words for each other. You begin to see when you read in the New Testament, the word we translate as elder, the word that we translate as overseer, the word that we translate as shepherd, where we get our English word pastor, they're all interchangeable. So when you begin to see that when Paul or Peter or James or Luke are talking about elders or overseers or pastors, they're all talking about the same function, the same person, the same role. And what you begin to see is that the only consistent form of leadership in God's local church is the plurality of elders, of guys who have been called out by the Holy Spirit first, who deeply enjoy the grace of God in their lives and have taken on the responsibility to lead, to feed, and, and to protect God's people. I mean, it's hard if you, if you really do a study on this and you really teach on this and you were to take the time and we were to take the time to walk through all the evidence of this and understanding of this, it's hard to actually come to the conclusion that God's intention for the local church is to have anything other than a group of elders that enjoy God's grace deeply as its primary leaders. Does that make sense? Enough teaching? Enough things up on the screen for you to follow? You ready for me to preach? Let's see what Paul says to Titus about what the elders are to do and what they're to be characterized by. Verse 9, Titus 1, verse 9. What is an elder to do? Verse 9 says, He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. Chiefly, what's an elder supposed to do? He's supposed to be a man that enjoys grace. An elder is supposed to be a man that enjoys grace. The first thing that we see about an elder and what he does is that he is a man who holds firm to the trustworthy word that was taught. And what in the, in the book of Titus so far, just in Paul's introduction of himself and the introduction of his letter to Titus, have we seen is the essence of the message, the trustworthy message that Paul has commissioned Titus to continue to preach and to hold fast to. The essence of the message that has so changed Paul, so changed Titus, that he used to hold so firmly to and encourage others in is grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. An elder first must be a man who deeply trusts the good news of God's grace through faith in Jesus, and he displays that trust, the depth of that trust, the hope of that trust, the breadth of that trust in the way that he understands who he is and how he lives his life. An elder is a man that deeply enjoys the grace of God that comes from Jesus Christ and proclaims peace, peace with God that comes from God's grace and not our work. What's an elder supposed to do? He's supposed to be a man who first and foremost with his mouth and with his life proclaims that our relationship with God, our peace with God, our hope with God, our assurance before God, our understanding of ourselves in relation to God comes from God's grace and not our work. 
An elder is to be a man who holds fast, who holds firm to the trustworthy word of the gospel. An elder is a man who is first and foremost supposed to be a gospel-centered man who's driven deeply by the grace of God that has so changed him in his life. The first thing that he's supposed to do, the chief thing that he is supposed to do that gives the foundation for everything else that he's supposed to do and displays everything about his character that we'll talk about in a minute is he is supposed to be a man who holds firm to the good news of God's grace. He must enjoy the grace of God very deeply. Brian Chappell, who's been very helpful uh, in this text, in this book for me, he says, while character is a primary attribute of an elder, as we'll look at in the rest of Titus. He said, elders must be men whose lives display the power of the gospel, but whose lips proclaim the hope of the gospel. And what is that hope that an elder must hold fast to? Of all things he's supposed to do, he must be one that holds firm to the trustworthy message. His mouth and his life is to proclaim what hope? To claim this, that God loves us, that God has accepted us, that God has been reconciled to us, not because of our goodness, but because of his. He is to be one that holds firm and proclaims all that he is and all that he says, that our relationship with God is not grounded upon our own goodness, but upon God's goodness. He's to be one that holds firm in the midst of all types of assault in the midst of all types of temptation, in the presence of all sorts of distortions, he is to be one who first and foremost holds firm to the trustworthy message that it is not our work that does anything to assure our relationship with God. It is solely God's work through Christ on our behalf. He is to be a man who holds firm to the gospel. He is to be a man whose life, whose life reflects a deep, and abiding enjoyment of God's grace. Chapel went on to say, an elder's life is to give hope that real change is possible because of the grace of God. He's to be a man that enjoys grace and whose life gives, whose life gives other people hope to enjoy grace as well. If we want to cultivate healthy churches, if we want to cultivate a healthy church, and we want to continue cultivating healthy churches, we must, must appoint elders who hold fast to the trustworthy message of grace and peace that comes from God. That alone is the only foundation. Foundation. It is the only true nourishment for the body of Christ that will produce any measure of health in our life. I mean, listen to what, what Paul says happens when, when that is not primary. Verse 10, Titus 1, verse 10. Here's what it looks like when leaders don't enjoy the grace of God. When the primary act of an elder or a leader is not one who holds firm to the trustworthy message of God's grace. This is what's happening in Crete. Verse 10, there are many, talking about false teachers, who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Verse 16, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. Paul is lit up. His 
soul. I mean, I'm trying to imagine Paul writing this letter. And I'm trying to imagine him getting to this place in the letter, talking about what's going on in that church in Crete and and the leaders that are now coming into that church and trying to dissuade that church from the trustworthy message of grace and trying to persuade that church to believe that Jesus is great to get you started. But if you really want purity, if you really want holiness, if you really want hope, you you can trust Jesus, but then you've got to do all these other things that that have been ceremonially historical in the life of a Jewish believer. You've got to go through circumcision. You've got to celebrate certain feasts. You've got to celebrate certain festivals. They're saying that Jesus is a great place to start, but now you've got to add all these other things on. And I'm trying to imagine the Apostle Paul writing this letter and getting to this place where he's encouraging Timothy to appoint elders who, who enjoy the grace of God, who hold firm to the grace of God, because there are these men that are doing this to God's people, and he's getting lit up. And the reason why appointing elders who enjoy the grace of God deeply must be of primary importance is because doctrine matters. Belief matters. Hope matters. What you trust matters. Paul is not lit up because he liked to argue and he liked to debate and he's telling Titus, you need to appoint elders in this place that can deal with this so they can, they can argue with these guys and they can convince them of, of what's right and where they're wrong. Paul is lit up about this because what's happening? What's the consequence of these elders and these leaders who have come into the church who don't hold firm to the trustworthy message as it's been taught? What's the consequence of these false teachers who, who are not enjoying the grace of God? Whole households are being destroyed. Paul is lit up, not because someone has something wrong, but because when you don't hold fast to the grace of God, when you don't encourage people and instruct people and help people deeply enjoy the grace of God, you end up destroying people because it's only the grace of God that can change everything. Anything else cannot do it. And so these men have come into this church and they're trying to persuade these people they got off on the right foot, but now they've got to go this way and Paul is mad. And he's telling Timothy, here's what you do. Don't argue with them. Don't write books about them. Don't spread rumors about them. Here's what you need to do in this church to promote health. Appoint men who enjoy the grace of God deeply, who hold firm to the trustworthy message as it's been taught, because that matters. It matters. Only God's grace changes everything. And only the gospel Only the gospel can be the foundation of the life of a church and the life of a healthy believer. And so Paul, he's telling Titus, find men that deeply enjoy my grace, that deeply enjoy God's grace, that hold firm to the trustworthy message of the gospel of grace because anything else can't change you deeply and everything else will ultimately lead to destruction. And I was thinking about it, I thought, well, What's an ancillary effect of this? And I think this is partly in Paul's mind. When you appoint leaders, elders in the church, who deeply enjoy the grace of God, an ancillary effect is this. You have leaders in your church who you can look at and whose lives lived before you and among you and what they say and what they do and still hope in you and the power of the grace of God. Because they too, like you, at one point apart from God, were sinners. Paul said, appoint men in in Crete. And what did he say about Cretans in the middle of this text, in in verses 11 and 12? He said, your own prophets, another Cretan, said they're drunkards, they're lazy. 
This was the testimony of what these men were like. And Paul says, go find some who have tasted my grace and who enjoy my grace from these people who were at one time drunkards and lazy and appoint them to lead the church to enjoy grace. When you appoint elders who deeply enjoy the grace of God, when you struggle enjoying the grace of God, their life alone and their presence alone gives encouragement and testimony to the power of God because apart from that very grace you're struggling to hold fast to, they would have been just like you and at one time were. Hold fast to the trustworthy message, Titus. Titus, find men who are deeply enjoying the grace of God, who hold fast to this trustworthy message and appoint them, appoint them to lead my people, to feed my people, to protect my people. Enjoying grace, being changed and driven by grace. That's the first task of an elder, and that lays the foundation and sets the course for everything else that an elder does. Everything else that he does comes out of this foundation of being a man who deeply enjoys the grace of God. And let's look at what else Paul, in this one passage, says that an elder is supposed to do. He's supposed to deeply enjoy grace, and an elder is supposed to lead and, and feed God's people, lead and feed the sheep. Verse 9, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word, so that he may be able to give instruction. Some of your Bibles will say encourage others in sound doctrine. So an elder needs to not only know the trustworthy message, he needs to not only know the message of the gospel, he needs to not only know the grace of God that comes through Jesus Christ alone and the peace with God that comes through trusting in that grace alone, but he needs to be one who so deeply believes and trusts in that grace that has warmed his heart and has shaped who he is, and he must be one who can take that message, that trustworthy message that he holds firm to, and apply it to the realities of life. Around here, we've said it before, and we'll say it again, but that the healthy church is, is best recognized in one sense by having leaders, by having elders, by having pastors who can take the riches of God who take the riches of the gospel, the treasures of God's grace, and accurately apply them to the realities of everyday life. This is what Paul is encouraging Titus to find men who are doing in, in Crete, to find men who are holding firm to this trustworthy message, and they can take that message and apply it to the realities of life and other people. In 1 Timothy, a letter Paul wrote to his protege Timothy, 1 Timothy 3, you'll find another whole little writing about elders in the church, and we won't have time to go there this morning. But one of the ways that he, in 1 Timothy 3, Paul distinguishes this charge to elders is that he's got to be a man who can teach. He's got to be a man who can teach. And elders got to be able to not only take this Bible, but he's got to be able to know this Bible. He's got to be able to trust this Bible. He's got to be one that surrenders to this Bible. He's got to be one that loves this Bible. He's got to be one that's passionate about this Bible. And he's got to take the message of this Bible, the good news of God's grace as comes through Jesus, and accurately apply it to the realities of everyday life. Not only in his life, but in the lives of other people. He's got to be a guy that doesn't just want to be able to do that, but he's got to be a guy whose life is already displaying that. He's got to be a man that deeply loves sound doctrine, that deeply loves the message of the gospel and the particularities of who God is as he's revealed himself in his word. He's got to be a man who's passionate about the things of God and the doctrines of God and theology. He's got to be a man who loves to continue to learn those things, not so that he can know so much, but so he can accurately apply them to his life and to the lives of others. That some translations will say here, not just instruct and teach, but encourage others in. One of the chief roles of elders is he holds fast to the trustworthy message, message and enjoys the grace of God is that he can take it and encourage other people with it. I mean, some of you know a lot of things. Some of you know a lot of stuff. You know a lot of Bible. 
you know a lot of theology, but there's nothing inherent in you that compels you in any way, shape, or form by what you know to go and encourage others with it. And there's one thing about an elder is that he has this compulsion that comes from God. As the Holy Spirit has appointed him as an elder, is calling him into this position, he takes what he knows of God and what God is changing him with and the message of grace, and he feels responsible for that encouragement in the life of the people. It's one thing for you to encourage yourself in the Lord. It's another thing to feel the responsibility to encourage one another. And we'll see when we talk about the lives of members, that is the very thing that we are all called to do in the life of one another. But a man who's being set apart by God to be an elder, a man who the Holy Spirit is at work in, is setting apart to be an elder, he's a guy that feels this particular responsibility and compulsion kind of like a new parent. You know how your sense of responsibility changes when you had your first kid, parents? All of a sudden, there's just this weight that's there and another life that you have to care for, and it changes the way you think about yourself, hopefully. It changes the way you think about your time and your responsibilities, hopefully. It changes the priorities with which you make your decisions, hopefully. A guy who God is setting apart for the work of an elder is a guy who not only holds firm to the trustworthy message, who's not only continually and increasingly learning to enjoy God's grace, but he feels an internal compulsion to encourage others with that grace, to instruct others with that grace. He's a man, Chapel said, who understands the power of grace in his life, and he sees the dangers and threats towards that grace, and he feels obligated and burdened to encourage or instruct others in that grace. A guy that the Holy Spirit is setting apart to be an elder does not feel like he has the right to avert leadership, the right to avert responsibility in the life of other people to encourage them in the gospel for the sake of his own comfort, for the sake of his own priority, for the sake of his own pursuit of something else. There's a burden that God has given him. It's a burden that the Holy Spirit has borne in his heart. And he's burdened to see the gospel applied and take root in the lives of other people. This is a man who God is setting apart to lead his people, to feed his people. It's a man who feels obligated by the grace of God to take initiative in the lives of other people. He's not just a guy who takes initiative in his own life, and he's not just a guy who takes initiative in a little clique of people. That happens in churches too. You know, elders are guys who, who feel a burden for the gospel and the grace of God, finding its way, sowing its way, cultivating its way into the lives of all of God's people. There are some people who tend to hold firm to the trustworthy message, amen, who tend to can live deep and, and enjoy the depth of God's grace, amen, and then feel a small obligation towards those people who they directly do life with most often, who they feel somewhat moderately responsible for, everyone else be damned. Not a man who God is setting apart to lead his people. What happens when those guys get appointed as pastors and elders of churches? You get Congress. You get guys who are elected by particular people, who care for particular people, the interests of particular groups and particular people, and when the elders come together to direct the affairs of the church under the grace of God, they speak for particular people. They don't have a burden, an obligation, a sense of responsibility to the whole. You find them burdened by particular people. Good thing, great thing, wonderful thing. Not a guy who's being set apart to lead all of God's people. An elder is a guy who's holding firm to the trustworthy message, who's enjoying the grace of God deeply, and who is being set apart by God and feeling the weight, the burden, the responsibility of seeing that grace cultivated in the lives of all of God's people. 
So an elder is one who teaches, one who encourages, one who instructs, and one who leads God's people. There's something else that he does in this passage, and we could take whole weeks on each of these things. Elders not only lead and feed the sheep, according to Paul and Titus in, in 1 Timothy, elders also shoot wolves. At least that's how I say it. Elders lead and feed the sheep, and elders also shoot wolves. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word is taught. He's got to enjoy grace deeply so that he may be able to give instruction or encourage others in sound doctrine. He's got to love that doctrine so deep that he's compelled by God with a sense of responsibility to lead, to feed, to teach, and to encourage God's people in that doctrine. And, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Some of your Bibles will say oppose it. Grace, when a man's heart, soul, life is so deeply entwined with the grace of God, when the grace of God so drives his heart, it produces a spine, a spiritual spine in that man that is stronger than any metal that I know of. And a concern for the purity of the gospel, a concern for the purity of the trustworthy message that's been passed down, a concern for the purity of the grace of God that has changed him and he knows is the power of God to change everyone else in his stead and everyone else that he knows rises up in him to such a degree that grace drives him to be on the lookout for anything that would oppose or contradict the good news that he holds so fast to. Paul's concern, remember, his concern for the purity of the gospel, his concern for these men to be able to correct or to rebuke anything that opposes the gospel is not for the sake of argument, but for the sake of health. Remember, false doctrine, leaders who teach something contrary to the gospel, people who point others to anything for hope and assurance before God other than the grace that comes through Jesus Christ alone ultimately lead other people's lives into ruin and to destruction. And Paul says you've got to look for a guy who holds fast to this message, who enjoys grace so deep that the presence of false teaching brings out his teeth. It brings out his teeth. It brings out his claws. He so abhors the grace of God being butchered because he knows not that he is right and someone else is wrong. No, that guy does not need to be leading a church. A guy whose spine stiffens and whose teeth come out when the gospel is being butchered simply because he thinks he's right and that person is wrong does not need to leave the church because the grace of God is never to be used as a club to hit someone over the head with. But his spine stiffens and his teeth come out because that gospel that that person is preaching, contrary to the gospel of God and the grace of God that he has tasted and he knows, leads people to destruction. And what he cares about is not his argument and not his, his intelligence and, his, and him being right. What he cares about are the lives of the people that God has now burdened him with. Some people, as I talk to people about this message, and I've talked to a lot of people as we're involved in church planting and church planting organization about the characteristics and the qualifications of people who God are calling to lead and plant his churches. Some people insist that by teaching the qualifications and the characteristics of an elder founded upon a man who enjoys grace will ultimately lead people to think that elders or pastors or, or those who lead church or who, who lead God's churches are, are spineless. 
that if they're driven by grace, they're always going to be looking around at people and, and trying to dispel the grace that everything is okay, you don't need to worry, everything will be all right. They tend to hear this grace-drivenness and this enjoyment of grace as an idea that would possibly produce a, a spinelessness in God's people. And I will tell you from the scriptures and from experience, when you deeply enjoy the grace of God that comes to understanding peace with God coming from Jesus, and it begins to change you, and it begins to work its way down deep into your soul, it does the very opposite. What might have been at one time spineless becomes as strong as steel. And any man who leads God's people and who confesses to enjoy God's grace that comes from knowing and trusting in Jesus Christ as his Savior and as his Lord, and he cannot with any confidence stand up to anything that smacks in opposition to God's gospel, does not enjoy the grace of God. He enjoys the opinion of other people, the comfort that comes from not having con conflict. He enjoys the appreciation of other people and his reputation above other people more than he enjoys the purity and the power of the grace of God. Spinelessness comes from the very opposite of enjoying grace. It comes from enjoying something other than God's grace, and that's whatever you get from other people who you dare not come into any conflict with. Do you understand? One of the things that elders are called by God to do is to protect God's people, to protect his gospel, to protect that message. And any man who fancies himself a leader in the church or any man who aspires to lead God's people who cannot do that, does not want to do that, and fears doing that, is not ready to lead God's people. He's not ready. So Titus, Paul says, appoint guys in the church who enjoy the grace of God deeply because they're going to be the ones charged with the responsibility to lead my people, feed my people, encourage my people, and protect my people. Shoot the wolves that seek to devour their lives. And here's how you can check to see if he's one of those guys. Here's how you can know if he's a guy. Ultimately, only God can know what's going on in the depths of a man's heart. But here, Titus, here's how you can look under the hood and see if what he says really is true. And here's what he's going to do. He's going to give us some things. He's going to give us some things that we can look at as diagnostics and say, hmm, confesses to deeply enjoy grace, seems to be able to trust and hold firm to the gospel. Let's, let's see how that plays itself out. Let's see what it does. Look for a man who is above reproach. This is what he's going to say. And here, I want to encourage you in this. This list of, of characteristics, this list of attributes that he's going to talk about, we're going to go through them briefly. We'll unpack them another time. Maybe next week, we'll go into them in more detail. But these are attributes that should be characteristic of every person who calls himself a Christian. Of every person who calls himself a Christian. Outside of the ability to teach, encourage, instruct God's people, we could take you anywhere in the Bible and show you where every one of these things is called by God to be an attribute in your life. So I'm going to turn this around and I'm going to look at all the men that are in here. Instead of saying, look for a man who's above approach, we're going to read these characteristics and I'm just going to say this, are you this man? This is what the message of grace should be shaping in your life. So I'm going to turn around, I'm going to say this. Not just look for a man that's above reproach, Titus, but ask, look around, ask yourself, are you a man that's above reproach? Verse 6, if anyone 
If anyone is above reproach, some of your Bibles will say blameless. This is an important characteristic because Paul mentions it twice, actually. Twice in his list of attributes, he's going to say he's got to be a man who's above reproach or blameless. Uh, By the definition, the word that we're translating here actually means not chargeable for some offense. Doesn't mean sinless. Doesn't mean sinless. If it meant sinless, it meant the only person who could lead the church would be who? Jesus, he already does. I mean, no one could have any authority, responsibility, or care for the local church other than Jesus because he's the only one who's sinless. That's not what it means. You're talking about a person's life being above reproach or being blameless. You're talking about a man whose life is not chargeable with some, some offense. And here's what I want us to see as we look at this list, and we're going to look at it quickly. Here's what I want us to see. We tend to read these things sometimes and, and study these things, and, and I think if you've been in church for any period of time, this list is not going to be foreign to you. You've probably heard somebody talk about this or preach about this. And what we tend to do when we read this list, and I've done it before, and I have great friends who preach this so well, and they they do it as well, but we tend to read this list very individualistically. We tend to to kind of narrow this list down into a category of personal piety. That is, my heart reflect this. By casting this list under the umbrella of blamelessness, and he's going to do it twice, of a life that's above reproach, It's talking about a life that cannot be charged by someone else as having an offense against it. So what it means is that all the things that he's about to talk about are things that are on display in the lives of other people. He's not just talking about your inward personal piety that's left to your own subjective understanding or interpretation of where your heart is. Are you holy? Are you disciplined? Should you know? It's what's on display before other people. These characteristics are to be men who are to be leading God's people whose reputation precedes them, whose lives are not to be open to some charge of offense. So all of these characteristics are characteristics that are born outward in your life, not just inward and subjective. And for some people, that's going to be really encouraging because you're going to go, you know what? I'm not, I'm not sinless, so being above reproach and being blameless, well, that doesn't disqualify me from leading God's people because it doesn't mean that I'm sinless. But for other people, this is going to absolutely freak you out. Because you're going to think, well, I'm not sinless. I'm, I'm above reproach. That's cool. But when you talk about the fact that these characteristics are supposed to be born in your life as it's lived with other people, you naturally go, well, you know, I don't know that I want to be accountable to other people's opinions of me. I, I know what I do when no one else is around with my friends from work. I know where I go when I tell my wife I've got lunch plans. And she thinks I'm going to Wendy's. Hmm. I don't know that I want my life as it's displayed before other people to hold me accountable for leading God's people. And it's going to worry you. More so, one of our guy I deeply respect, another pastor down in Alabama, a young guy, David Platt, who many of you listen to and love, and I encourage you to listen to him. Unbelievably anointed pastor and preacher. Um, we were at a regional luncheon and gathering of pastors and preachers. And uh, we were talking about this very thing. And he said that he has toyed with legitimately the idea of taking out an ad in their local newspaper when the time comes to appoint new elders in the church on their calendar basis. Taking out an ad in the local Birmingham newspaper and saying, look, this is the church of Brook Hills and this is what we believe about God's church. And we believe that God has called particular men to lead his church and this is what their life is to look like. And the following men have been going through a process whereby we've been examining their life, but we're going to hold their lives before you. If you know anything about their life that would bring an offense against any of these things to them, please let us know. 
because we deeply care about the purity of God's church. The men whose lives are above reproach, not only before God, but before the people who we seek to love and to serve. I don't know that it's really that bad of an idea. But Paul looks at Titus and he says, he's got to be a guy that enjoys grace. He's got to be a guy that has the ability given to him by God to take that message and encourage other people with it, to instruct other people with it. And that grace has got to be building in him a spine that refutes anything that draws anybody away from him. He's got to be able to protect my people. And you see a guy, if you think you can do that, pop the hood on his heart a little bit. And let's just see if that grace has really taken a hold. Is he above reproach? Is his life chargeable of any offense that you may know of? In particular, is he above reproach in his relationships at home? Is he above reproach, blameless, not chargeable of any offense in the relationship with his wife? He gotta be the husband of one wife. Literally, that translates, no lie, literally, that translates, is he a one-woman man? This isn't a charge against polygamy in that time. This is language talking about the purity of a man's heart, the purity of a man's life in relationship to his wife. And I will tell the single guys that are in here, they're not married yet, in your relationship towards the women that are in your life. Is there a purity that's displayed in his life, in his relationship with his wife? Are his eyes only on one woman, his wife? Are his hands on one woman, his wife? Does he display a love and a service that characterizes Jesus' love and service of his bride, of his church? Look at his marriage. Do you see purity there? Do you see holiness there? Do you see blamelessness above reproach? Is he a one-woman kind of man? And, and, and we'll, we'll, I'm going to wrap this one, this one up because this is an important one, and we'll pick up with this next week because I, I want to I drill this down on you. Is he a one-woman man? Here's what that Here's what that disqualifies. And this is what disqualifies so many men. Some who are already in the role of an elder, some who are aspiring to be in the role of an elder, this is the atomic bomb that will absolutely disqualify you. Maybe second to this would be thinking that the offering in the bank account was your own petty cash box. Happens all the time. This, <laughs> this distinction this characteristic is most betrayed in the life of men in a church, in leadership, and even men who are aspiring to be leaders in God's church, when they look to another woman other than their wife, this includes men who are not married, when they look to another woman other than their wife, not just for physical, sexual gratification, but when they engage in relationships with another woman who is not their wife on an emotional level that brings them some sort of satisfaction, that tries to fulfill some kind of need and emptiness in their own soul, when they manipulate the emotions in a relationship with another woman who is not their wife in such a way to fulfill some sort of lack or some sort of need in their own heart, that is manipulation and that is abuse. That is a man who is not a one-woman man. This will get pastors and this will get men in the church faster 
than simple physical gratification with a woman who's not your man. Men will manipulate the relationships and the authority and the power and the role that they have in the church before people with another woman in such a way to fill some sort of deficiency that they're not filling with the gospel that they proclaim with their mouth that they're supposed to lead and encourage people in and they will manipulate other people and they will destroy their reputation. They will destroy people's lives. These are the very people that Paul is talking about when he's talking to Titus. These are the guys who with their mouths proclaim God but their lives, their lives are a wreck. This will destroy you faster than anything. Are you a one-woman man? Sure, I don't cheat on my wife. I don't download porn. I don't do all that. No. Are you using another woman in the church other than your wife to fulfill some sort of emotional, power, influential need that you feel like you have that's not being met by God? This will ruin you. Do that. Do that. Say goodbye to your reputation. Continue doing that. Say goodbye to God's people. Because your life betrays the very hope, the very grace that your mouth is proclaiming. And we have zero tolerance for that. Zero tolerance for that. Because believe me, believe me, the gospel and the grace of God is so dear and so pure to the people that God has so far called to lead this particular church, we have zero problem, zero problem dealing with that. Zero problem. This particular characteristic, I honestly believe God has sovereignly called Paul to encourage Titus and Timothy in, sovereignly called his church is now to encourage one another and looking for elders in solely, honestly, I think, to protect the women in the church. I honestly believe this is a characteristic that God has sovereignly ordained us to be particularly cautious about for the sake of the women in God's church. It's a protection. It's a protection. And no man will be tolerated in the church who continues to do that. This will destroy you. Does this mean, and we'll pick this up next week, does this mean you've got to be married? be an elder. No. No. It doesn't mean you've got to be married to be an elder. Paul wasn't married. Titus wasn't married. Timothy, as far as we know, wasn't married. It doesn't mean you have to be an elder. You can be single. You can be unmarried, and you can be a one-woman man. I mean, you can display this attribute in your life. You can treat the women in the church as, as though they're not all potential wives, but they're sisters. You don't have to test drive all the unmarried ladies in the church to figure out if one is there for you. You don't have to spend your time on the internet looking at things you shouldn't look at. You can love God, enjoy his grace deeply, continue to learn what it means to enjoy the wife that by God's grace he will give you one day. And you can be a one-woman man before you're actually married. You can do that. You can do this. And I'm going to encourage you before I pray, and we're going to pick this up next week. I'm going to encourage you before, before we pray. Ladies, this, this, is, this is the kind of, of man this is the kind of man that you need to be praying that God continue to shape and raise in this church. Ladies, if you're married, this is the kind of man you need to pray God continues to shape your husband to be. Take time this week to read this text. This is the kind of men that God's grace is raising up in his church. Pray that God would do that in the lives of your husband. If you know men in the church, ladies who, who aren't married, 
If you know men in the church who, who aren't married yet as well, pray that God make these men into those, these kind of men. Men who hold firm to the trustworthy message of grace, who are increasingly learning to trust in the grace of God as it comes to Jesus Christ. That that grace would produce in them a spine that would seek the purity of that message, that would seek a desire to protect that message, that would seek a desire to see that message encouraged and instructed in other people's lives. Pray that God would raise up the men in this church to be the type of men that he is calling to lead his church. Because as we'll see, and we'll talk about it specifically next week, we, we don't start programs to make elders. You don't have a mill where you take a guy and you stick him in it and he starts at A and he ends up at Z and now he's an elder. Paul said, Titus, appoint guys in Crete who, who were displaying this. You look at the men that God is raising up who are already doing the work of an elder, who are living deeply in the grace of God, trusting deeply in the grace of God, encouraging others in the grace of God, protecting the grace of God, refuting those who are not trusting in the grace of God and seeking to lead other people astray, who love their wives, who love their kids. And you display the characteristics we talk about. You take those guys and you appoint them. And you continue then to encourage that development in them. God is the one who appoints these leaders. Pray deeply, pray powerfully, pray consistently that God would appoint these types of leaders in this church. That God would make the men of this church that he's calling here into these type of men. That's my prayer for my life. That's my prayer for the other elders who are here, Chris and, and Ray, and for those of you here that God is going to call. There are some of you who are watching. There are some of you who are displaying these attributes. God is at work in you and you're sensing this burden. God is appointing you into this role. It's our job to pay attention. And we're watching. Continue to pray that God would raise up men in this church who enjoy his grace and treasure his grace, protect his grace, encourage his grace, who love his people. That's what's essential to cultivating a healthy church, is to have leaders who enjoy the grace of God because where the leaders go, the church will go. The leaders don't enjoy the grace of God, the church won't enjoy the grace of God. The leaders don't hold firm to the gospel, the people won't hold firm to the gospel. If the, people don't, if the leaders don't refute the error that seeks to lead people away, the people won't refute error. And it'll be a debacle. It'll be a mess. So pray that God continue by his grace to raise up men in this church to be elders, to be leaders. And the next week we'll talk more specifically about what some of these characteristics are and what they're like. But for now, I want to pray for us. I want to pray for the church. And I want to encourage you to pray for your pastors now. Pray for your pastors to come. And pray for the men that are in your life. Um, and be diligent. Be diligent with one another. When you see characteristics that God is calling, calling out in men's life, encourage them in it. Point it out and encourage them and the grace of God that you see in their life. Let us be that kind of people. Let me pray for us and we'll, we'll keep going. Father, thank you for your grace that changes. Changes everything. The testimony of the men in in Crete, lazy, drunkards, gluttons, good for nothing. Apart from your grace, God, that was my testimony. That was my story. Lazy. On paper, good for nothing. But your grace has changed me. It has radically, radically <laughs> renewed my heart. Lord, and your grace is so dear and so precious, and I pray that in my heart and in all of our hearts, Lord, your, your grace would become more dear, that we would cling to it with more hope and more trust, that it would cultivate, that it would cultivate a heart that is just driven, driven by your love for us. Lord, we want to be a people that are marked by 
lives that are centered on the gospel and driven by your grace. Let us be a healthy church made up of healthy people who enjoy your grace deeply. Lord, and may you raise up leaders in your church who enjoy your grace, who can lead your people, who can feed your people, who can protect your people as we follow you, Lord, our chief shepherd. We ask this, that the testimony of our church might bring you glory, that it might display your worth and your goodness, your commitment to your people. Amen.